test, test. I will be clear, we will be clear, this is the worst public health crisis for a generation. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Harmonious World. I am absolutely delighted that I was joined in a conversation by British saxophonist and MC Soweto Kinch, who is one of the most intelligent men in Britain today. And I say that partly because his fellow Brummie poet Benjamin Zephaniah died last week. What you're listening to right now is a piece called Chaos, which is taken from Soweto Kinch's album White Juju, which was recorded in November 2021 at the Barbican with the London Symphony Orchestra. Now we're at the point where we have an inquiry going on into how our government dealt with the pandemic, and it's clear that we weren't led very well. So White Juju features some broadcast speeches that we were all listening to at the time. And it addresses the issues around the pandemic, around racism, misogyny, the British police, the environment, the health, the wealth gap, which is just getting worse and worse. So we're very fortunate that Soweto Kinch is around still. He's, uh, as I say, a very intelligent man. He has a degree in modern history from Oxford University. And he has many awards and accolades, including MOBOs and Mercury Prize nominations. Not only is he a very intelligent man, but he's a jolly good person as well. I met him for the first time. I've heard him play many times, but I met him for the first time at the recent opening of Ladbroke Hall. And his music was in, was incredible that night. He's a fascinating and very, very talented saxophonist. But at the end of the show, I felt able to go and just have a chat with him and asked him to join me on the pro- podcast. And I was delighted that he was able to do so. So I hope you enjoy listening into my conversation with saxist Soweto Kinch. And I can't recommend highly enough that you listen to the whole of White Juju because it's an extraordinary album. But in this fight, we can hear no doubt that each and every one of us is directly enlisted. Each and every one of us is now Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, Harmonious World. So Quincy Jones once said, imagine what a harmonious world it would be if we all shared what we're good at. So that's the whole point. So when I saw you performing at Ladbrook Hall, um, I was like, right, I need to get him on so you can talk about what you do. That's like amazing because I love the stuff you do. Um, You know, you do so much more than just stand on stage and play saxophone. Sure. Uh, well, the interesting title of your podcast seems 
for I guess quite difficult reasons really applicable this week when Absolutely. we're I guess all being confronted with what it means to just be a human being nobody can sort of stand by and see innocent civilians attacked by Hamas or by the IDF and a lot of my music in fact my entire existence actually is sort of framed by some of those discussions my name is Soweto Kinch it's my government name um, my mum called me Soweto I was born a couple of years after the Soweto uprising which not everybody knows about in 1976 black school children were protesting against a racist apartheid government and the police shot them shot and killed children who were protesting against a racist occupation and that's what gave me my name so uh, obviously as a child it was quite radicalizing discovering why you're called that and turning up at anti-apartheid meetings and being part of that general resistance and that's given me a particular perspective on things on things such as political crises, occupation, colonialism, racism, et cetera. It meant that I couldn't be impartial and just sort of sit on the fence. Um, just my name alone, if you like, makes me sort of out and proud and therefore a target for attack and derision at the same time. It means that I've kind of had to defend what I stand for and why I stand for it. But again, crucially, creating music, which in my opinion, creates a space for dialogue, I hope. Sometimes it's confronting, it's not always easy listening, sometimes quite challenging, but the point of my music is to, I guess, challenge received wisdom and bring people together in the process. Yeah, I really, really love your style of playing. You're very gentle. It was interesting because when I saw you, you were with uh, Zenya Strigalev and his band and marvellous Lucianne Daniels on mm. vocals. Mm -hmm. um, and the way you blended in was really, really nice. And I've I've always liked your playing anyway. I mean, I'm a fellow sax player. I, I, I can kind of hear what you do. It, my mm. ears are attuned to it, I guess. But um, I think you come across as a man and as a sax player who kind of, you want things to be done the right way, but you want to do it in a gentle way. Way. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I've never been told that before. It's quite, it's quite a compliment because <laughs> um, at different points in my life, I've been really assertive, and I think it's important to be able to be assertive as well. But um, you know, much of our art form, much of jazz, is about co conversation, about dialogue. Yeah, and there are times when I'd be expected to take a lead in that conversation or direct the topics for conversation, and times when. I just want to nod sagely along and encourage <laughs> other people to, to have a conversation and be a, play a supporting role in that conversation. And I think that's part of the maturity that I aspire to have, that you can be at, at once both present and assertive, as I say, when you need to be, but responsive and listening and supporting all the time. Yeah, and, and your music is a part, an important part, but it is just a part, isn't it, of, of how you present yourself and how you live your life I guess absolutely and, and I, I guess whether you want to or not the way you comport yourself as a person amongst others comes out in the way that you play just been watching a fantastic documentary of four parts on Wayne Shorter which you possibly heard of yeah and just looking at him as a person and his level of intellectualism ascetism sometimes quite removed but all of that comes through the music, the love, the the care, the consideration, the sort of encyclopedic orchestral mind, not just the soloist, I'm the saxophone guy, listen to me, 
You know, all of those things were present in Wayne's personality, rest in peace, and therefore present in his music. The yeah. playfulness, the exploration, all of that. Yeah. For my audience who perhaps don't know about your 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 musical background, how did you start playing? Because because it's it's very interesting, I think. Yeah, I, I can't really think of a moment where I started liking music, you know, enjoying it. I grew up in an artistic household, my father being a playwright. Uh, they were often dancers, musicians, actors and stuff in the house. So, you know, before I could even speak, I suspect I was playing a drum of some sort or involved in the arts, certainly. Right. But in terms of becoming a, a saxophone player, uh, when we moved to Birmingham at nine years old, there was a workshop in Handsworth called the Cultural Centre, at a place called the Cultural Centre. And it was at a time in the late 80s where right across the country, actually, we were we could encounter instruments, acoustic instruments were relatively cheap or free. Things were available in the quote unquote hood in working class communities. So I, you know, I was lucky enough to experience playing a saxophone at the age of nine, did nothing but pester my father to, to get me one. <laughs> and then at the age of 13, I met Winton Marsalis um, when he came to Birmingham and did a concert at Symphony Hall. And that was a hugely transformative experience. Um, the same year I met Gary Crosby, from the, from the Jazz Warriors, from Tomorrow's Warriors, even before it was called Tomorrow's Warriors. And gradually I kind of was surrounded by kindred spirits, but also really inspirational people, older or slightly older than me, Courtney Pine, Steve Williamson, Jason Yard, Dennis Baptiste. Um, and I mentioned Dennis and Jason, particularly as they were, you know, just only five or six years older than me, but in a position to show me, wow, this is the level to pitch for. This is what's possible. But these right. guys are like me. They come from a similar background to me. If they could do it, I can do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, I've obviously seen those guys playing and they, they're they very um, self-effacing musically, I think, which encourages other people, I think, to then be inclusive. Something about transcribing and, you know, listening to John Coltrane and Charlie Parker, that if you're doing it properly, is intensely humbling. You're like, well, every single note means something. These guys are real innovators. There's a real depth and profundity to everything that they play. There's nothing throwaway. Yeah. And it should place you, you know, with some reverence in relationship to the canon that stops you from getting too big for your boots. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But you have achieved some success, haven't you? You you're a, an award-winning sax player. I, I think if you, if anyone was gonna name British sax players who are alive today, you'd be in there with alongside Courtney Pine, probably, I think. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say when I became, you know, top five. <laughs> <laughs> I really have never thought about my craft or my playing in those terms. But probably because of the way that it began in terms of the love and affection of the British jazz community that basically wasn't existent, that didn't exist for, for a long time before I released my first album, I go to jam sessions and places. And I, I heard this experience repeated by Courtney Pine and others before me, going to Europe, going to Britain and not necessarily having your stuff together, but not having anybody to say, well, this is how you do it. Not being encouraged at all or being shown that there's a lineage of Courtney Pine, of Joe Harriet, going way back to Bertie King. These are things that I had to discover after releasing my album. And so actually my my goal was to be able to just play like Courtney Pine and Branford Marsalis and to be able to play like the people whose music I loved and getting close to them, you know, them saying, yeah, you keep going, kid, you keep doing. That's a bigger pat on the back than even the Mercury nomination and a MOBO award. 
right. really has been the fact that there's a boon to me in terms of being part of a community that if you're serious about it, respects you, you respect it, it respects you back. And so the subsequent stuff came subsequently. Right. It was never a case of, oh, I really want to be top five or <laughs> this <laughs> award or I don't know if anybody makes it if that's their intention. No. Just to be true to the talent that I had, but also to push my craft as far as it, it could go. And I think I'm similar in every respect with the things that I love and commit to, namely being an MC, a rapper, being an academic before I went to Oxford. So it's like, yeah. let me apply myself fully to this and see where it can go. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. One of the things that I, I interviewed Christian McBride and he said that if you go to a jazz gig, there's a pretty good chance that you can meet the person that you want to meet. Whereas if you go to, you know, see Taylor Swift, you're never going to meet her because yeah. she's get you know, whatever. Um, and I think there's something about the jazz community, particularly in this country. Obviously, I don't know in the States in the same way, but certainly in this country and I think in Europe that it's 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 easy to go up to somebody you know as they come off stage or or afterwards and you know and 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 sort of say to them you know i really liked what you did and and ask them questions and learn from them Mm -hmm. yeah relatively speaking i mean it's not always the case no i myself met christian mcbride when i was what 17 18 just another punter in a jazz gig (laughs) ronnie scott when they still have one in birmingham um i remember talking to james carter for like half an hour after that show and just being super inspired and just Christian's presence. I mean, he had this cigar and a really beautiful diamond ring. I remember thinking, Puff Daddy ain't got nothing on this guy. <laughs> he's obviously doing okay in the music business, but yet he's yeah. affable, accessible, and inspiring by, by his, his presence alone. And so I think, again, that's the DNA of the music. That's contained yeah. in the material of the music. If you have delusions of grandeur, invariably the, the most arrogant people I've met have been the ones who can't play. Yeah. And conversely, my first experience, as I mentioned with Winter Marsalis, was completely revolutionary. In fact, it kind of set the benchmark for how I expected to meet other musical celebrities. And it was nothing like as incredible as Winton's behavior. I mean, he went backstage with myself and another 13-year-old drummer and was just talking to us about percussion, talking to us about the West Indies, asking us parents about questions about our parents. I played a little bit of piano for him. This must have got him for like 40 minutes. Wow. I don't know, maybe, maybe it wasn't even that long, but it felt like <laughs> an anointing. It felt yeah. like, you go yeah. ahead, kid, you could do this. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're trying to be. Keep practicing. I'll see you, I'll see you soon. Right. Yeah. I saw him some 12 years later in Birmingham and he remembered the encounter like yesterday. I'd seen him, you know, intermittently between those the, that, that time. And there's an avuncular relationship, but there's also a sense of expectation like you would have in a family. Like you've got this legacy don't mess it up don't you keep taking it seriously if you're not one of those who takes it seriously then perhaps you won't be invited backstage and to hang out with the cats you know yeah. there's something about a mutual respect that it's hard to explain and, uh, and unless the only analogy I can think of is growing up in a black family where your right. uncles or your aunties can sometimes be quite stern not everybody has been as accommodating and as warm as Winton was. Right. They can sometimes give you some very tough love. I'm sure it's not an exclusively black thing, but then this thing of like, you've got to show them. You have yeah. to show them why what you're doing is serious or why what they've given you is going to impart some new wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And are you then passing that on to the next generation? 
Yes, and it happens, I'm blessed to say, in really organic ways. You know, Shabaka and I were practicing. He's not much younger than me, so we're kind of the same crop, but he's younger at the same time. And I remember meeting him backstage at a Courtney Pine concert. So there you have Courtney handing on the baton to me, handing it on to Shabaka, and and now Zosa Cole and, and many others uh, who are coming up. It's nothing that we had to contrive. It'd be like, I need a 20-something black saxophonist from Hansworth to take the to take the baton from me. It's happened very organically. Zosa went to a school which is right around the corner from me. And Hansworth is an incredibly musical, creative legacy in Birmingham. You know, that stardust, if you like, sprinkled on the area has, has inspired the likes of Steel Pulse, myself, and yeah. Zosa Cole. So it's never one person handing on a baton. It's a community. There is a lineage. There yeah. are ancestors, elders who will never release albums, you know, whose who's musical stylings and, uh, and, and ideas are, are still encoded in me and what I do. Like you say, you're not, you're not, lo- you're not looking to find somebody who, who fits that mould, but Sosa Cole, I mean, he's just an amazing player. So talk to me about your most recent music and what you've got coming up. Let's talk about albums that you've done recently. Mm-hmm. So what's the most recent thing you've done? Uh, my most recent release is called White Juju, and it's a live recording of music that I composed for the London Symphony Orchestra and was written during lockdown, both <laughs> one and two, a response to the craziness of that time and the racial animus, the culture wars. I think it's a, a profoundly important time that I'm proud to have an archive of, an audio, a sonic recording of all the madness that was going on at that time. It still is. Yeah, brilliant. Where did you record that? That was recorded at the Barbican in London in November 2021. And if you remember, it was just shortly after the second spike. And so strange circumstances, you know, everything felt a bit surreal as we were playing recording it. But I felt the audience resonated with the material. And then we had to get out of the hall immediately afterwards. I couldn't really shake any hands. Right. So we reprised the performance this year at the Printworks in London. And someone described it as sort of, cathartic they said it was like collective therapy I think was their name but just the thing of certain things being said and played from the stage that we've all been thinking but no one's had the temerity to say I think that's um a large part of what inspired White Juju the album right well I I very much like to play some extracts from that um alongside this conversation so but what's next what have you got coming up um, watch this space. I'm currently writing new music with an incredible pianist called Yaron Herman, uh, lives in Paris. And yeah, we're, we're at the moment in the compositional cave, hoping to record and get some stuff done early next year. And hopefully with future release in spring or summer 2024. Fantastic. Um, still touring and discussing work related to white juju. And I'd like to write something as well to accompany it, uh, written work. Right. Well, thank you. I'm very conscious that I'm taking up a lot of your time and I'm really grateful uh, that you were able to 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 connect with me. So Good. thank you, Soweto Kinch. It's been a real honour. Thank you, Hilary. Take care. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as... I enjoyed having it originally with Soweto and now listening to it again, editing it. 
He's a fascinating man. And I look forward to hearing some more around white juju. What you're listening to now is a piece called Clarity from that album. That whole conversation with Soweto was really about him sharing what he's good at. He really is an extraordinary man, both musically and intellectually. So thank you for joining me once more for Harmonious World and I hope you have a very, very good week. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Harmonious World. My name is Hilary Seabrook and it's a great delight to bring this series of discussions with musicians and composers and writers and all sorts of people to you. Obviously, there's no point in having a podcast if people aren't listening and I'm very grateful to my listeners for doing so. Thanks also to Joe English for composing and performing this new theme tune. So wherever you get your podcast, you can leave a review. You can share this with your friends and family, either as a link or on social media and that sort of thing. I'd be really grateful for that. Don't forget that you can subscribe now. There's a link wherever you get your podcasts. So have a great week and please remember why I started this, which is just to try and make the world a little more harmonious. Thanks for listening to Harmonious World. <laughs>